0: Hello and welcome to trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with
1: fascinating people. And a fascinating person we have for you today. He's a returning guest to trigonometry. He's one of the co-authors of the Grievance Hoax papers. He's the man who's read all the critical race theory books that so you don't have to. James Lindsay, welcome back to trigonometry. Um Glad to be here, especially after that introduction. <laughs>
0: oh, James, before we, we start, mate, I've got to say, you may have read all the books, but more importantly, did you post them to your Instagram story?
2: No, I actually can't <laughs> figure out how to use Instagram. I have one, and I like get these messages, and I know how to reply to people, and that's as far as I got. I haven't figured out how to post anything yet. I have okay, well, when you that. do,
1: make sure you post the black box, because that's how you stop racism. Now yeah, It is. Um, that's, that's the way, what right? Means. There's only that's one what way means. to do it
2: symbolic action is everything
1: (laughs) (laughs) well listen uh we spoke with you probably about a year ago i'm guessing we you you guys were in london we we had a very interesting chat with you and peter bogosian at the time i think the interview that we posted then was called social justice is a mind virus Mm -hmm. i'd say we're all pretty fucking infected at this point um is that is that a fair assessment of what's going on here
2: well, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, really spread pretty quickly. Um, it's, uh, mainstreamed at an incredible rate since, uh, the death of George Floyd at the end of May. Uh, and now, I mean, I basically can't find anybody outside of kind of the old people who don't talk about it all, more or less all the time. And, uh, obviously if you look at what's going on in like the media, it's just become like a blatant circus of lies where you know, oh, here's a building being smashed in and on fire, and they're like, whiteness is property from Cheryl E. <laughs> Harris. you know, this is a very important piece of scholarship saying, why well, you can burn down burn down a Starbucks or something. And so, yeah, um, this is a particular way of thinking. It is, in a sense, contagious, and the contagion of moral values sense. People are are brought into thinking this way because it leads them to feel like they're a good person rather than somebody who's failing to live up to goodness, and it has very, very rapidly uh, spread. It has very rapidly become a dominant, if not the dominant, contending moral force that's rising in the Western world and is getting exported from there as well. In an astonishingly short time, so yeah. Um, I mean, we have like the perfect metaphor for what's going on. Like it was in these research labs, and then some scientists weren't really careful with how they disposed of the you know whatever, and it got out. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have to start closing countries down. And I mean, it's it, it's odd the the parallelism here, but yeah, it is. It has spread very much like a pandemic, very rapidly, and and. You know, we're now you know hopefully close to the peak of the wave because uh, people are starting to talk a bit differently.
0: And James, with every pandemic, there are catalysts, there are things that basically speed it up. And mm-hmm. what would you identify as a catalyst? Is COVID a catalyst or have there been other factors involved as well?
2: I mean, yeah, COVID is probably actually a catalyst for a number of reasons, one of which is that it drove us all indoors and we stopped socializing normally and we got kind of pent up and frustrated. The fear, the uncertainty around economics that came with it, the lack of normal social interaction, the lack of being able to go out and blow off steam in the normal ways that people do, the sh- shuttling everybody into online communication kind of constantly. It's like there's a feeling that's not wholly wrong that, that this change is like Twitter having just exploded into the real world. Mm -hmm. And everybody's interacting like they're on Twitter constantly in some sense. And um, that makes sense because everybody's been on Twitter constantly Mm -hmm. for months. And I know that's the case because I remember when the lockdown started, people were saying, wow, I don't really have anything to do. It's like a break. And everybody, you know, I get, I have, it's like a good chance to remember how to slow down in life. And I'm like, my, my incoming crap went up by like, 60% 60% because all of the people who are now too online or who are not too online before became too online and started uh, sending me stuff. So it's like the amount of incoming messages and emails I had went up about 60% once the lockdowns began. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. People started to act online. There are lots of other, of course, catalysts that led to this, but I do think COVID was relevant. Um, obviously, there are shorter and longer term trends within kind of the socio-political sphere. Trump derangement has been ramping up for both good reasons and bad reasons. And I think as a huge contributor to this, and I do mean that, Trump derangement, I think there are extremely legitimate reasons to be very concerned about and unhappy about uh, President Trump, but there are also just histrionic, lunatic responses that don't match reality whatsoever. And this, it's, we just mentioned symbolic action, you know, joking around, but so much of that. Like, I went to New York City last summer and we ended up staying near Trump Tower in Manhattan. And so I just walked up there just to go out for a walk one day. And I told my family, you know, I I walked by Trump Tower and I saw Trump Tower and I took a picture looking up how tall it is or whatever. And my family was like, why didn't you take a picture of your middle finger pointed at it? I was like, (laughs) why would I do that? Like, what does that accomplish in the world? Does that like end his presidency that I flipped off a building? Mm. It's like it doesn't make any sense. So there was a lot of stuff going on with that. And that's part of a longer current. If you look at the anger on the left in America um, with feeling like the Republicans have been stealing our politics. Where, of course, the Republicans, on the other hand, say they were defending our politics from the radical left stealing our politics. So now it's all kind of very fraught. But these were all kind of antecedents and, and catalysts as well. But I mean, the obvious proximate cause was that there was a cause celebre that came up with George Floyd's death at the hands of a police officer, which was pretty clearly like way out of the normal, acceptable range of behavior that everybody said this is. You know, proof that something's wrong, which Mm -hmm. very rapidly mutated into this is proof that our entire system is bogus, feeding into a narrative that's been being laid very effectively for, I don't know, seven or eight years now, uh, if not longer.
0: And I remember you saying, James, that these clips act as, I I can remember you using them almost like religious icons was, I think, the way that you put it. miracle stories, yeah. miracle stories. So would you just touch on that? Because I think it's very, very important how this miracle story then became an example of how racism has is is, is infected all our political structures and our institutions.
2: Yeah, when you have a um, kind of nascent faith coming into, into the picture, or even one that's well-established, mm. uh, when you have a set of beliefs in particular that are, I don't want to say just blatantly untrue, it's more that they're really vague and so they're they're true and untrue at the same time by virtue of not really saying anything specific enough. Like our society is systemically racist. What does that mean? Well, it means that outcomes are different. Well, that doesn't really tell you anything. We already knew that. You know, it's very vague. Or if you talk about you know God's love is everywhere. Well, what does that mean? It means God's lo- God loves us and it's everywhere. You know, it doesn't tell you anything. So a lot of times the way that 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 profession of faith or the 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 belief is reinforced is by people seeking out confer- confirmatory uh, narratives or, or events that are like miracles. So you see, you know, these funny stories where, you know, Jesus appearing on a piece of toast, or you see these things where they see the, you know, the sun glare off of a particular glass window looking like the Virgin Mary. And so obviously this is now a holy spot and there's a miracle and somebody's like dripping water and saying, that's your tears or something. And they, they cook up these ideas. And in the ancient world, you could really see, you know, oh, this amazing thing happened. And then they go tell people and there's no verification whatsoever. And so it's just the story can get bigger and bigger. And this becomes like, yeah, the faith is true because this thing happened. And in our current era, we get that primarily through mediated clips. We get a clip of something that happened. In the case of the critical race narrative, it has mostly been clips of people acting in racist ways that are usually somewhat egregious or clips of police officers interacting with typically unarmed black people that end up in a fatality of the black. uh, I don't know what the, the right word is. I don't want to say you know, perp or suspect or whatever, but the person that they're interacting with anyway, that's on the other end of the law. And the context of those, the full context of those clips doesn't matter. What matters is the way that they fit within that broader narrative. So on on, when I went on Joe Rogan's podcast recently, I brought up Michael Brown and I I said, you know, it looks as though um, this was this horrendous killing if you just watch the video. The police officers way out of line and the Black Lives Matter movement around Ferguson literally went to the point of blocking traffic and many of the same kinds of protests and riots and antics that we're seeing now. And it turned out not to be based on reality whatsoever. Um, Well, that never got
1: acknowledged, James, actually. I remember at the time trying trying to say to people – like, what you're told about what happened isn't what happened. And, right, that's, and that's been verified scientifically. It's been verified medically. It's been it's confirmed been verified by black by, and white witnesses. It's right? been verified by Tony
2: Coates, who's, like, deep in the ideology that this was not a police murder. It was his statement about it. So, yeah, that's the thing, is these narratives have the power to run off and take a life of their own. I mean, when you tell somebody that the Virgin Mary appearing in the reflection of a you know car wash window isn't actually the Virgin Mary. It's just what the sun does when it hits glass of that shape. Um, They tend not to accept that because it would be disconfirmatory. We want to get into kind of the psychological and philosophical thinking behind it. It's because when people have adopted a mythological way of thinking, you can't pick apart a myth. Mm -hmm. To pick apart one strand of a myth is to tear the entire myth apart and to, to render it, uh, not true or not believable. So you can't look at scientific validation. You can't look at the full story. You can't look at any of these kinds of things. The more important thing is this event fits within the context of the myth and gives the myth legs. And because that narrative is so powerful, people run with it and it almost can't be unseated. If you were to then go back and say, mm, yeah, well, you have a point, you know, the Michael Brown incident. Uh, and on Joe's podcast, I didn't know, and Joe kind of pushed back on me. He was like, "Actually, I don't know the details." And I come home and I get like five thousand emails telling me, "Like, here's Tony Coates saying," <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, that's good enough for me. Um, I'll take that if you know he said it." And so it's like you can't though look at that and say, "Well, we have to now revise the entire." basis for our movement you instead have to find a way to reconcile that cognitive dissonance, either by downplaying it, ignoring it, or recasting it in some other more vague sense that still confirms the narrative. Because the point of a myth is of mythological structure is that it can't be torn apart. It can't be taken apart. And so when you think of these kinds of mediating events, like our mediated stories about events, I should say, pushing these narratives, um, you have to think of that in terms of mythology. You have to think of that in terms of the 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 video, the clip, the, the 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 you know snippet of story, the picture, or whatever. You have to think about that in terms of how it fits within the story that's trying to be told, and that people have taken on. And nothing else is, is going to be allowed to matter because that's. That And that's also how you know that when there's this outright rejection of any possible criticism of the foundations of the story that you're dealing with something that's gone spiritual and it's all mythological at that point.
1: Well, James, let, let's, you, you talk about the mythology, and that's something I'd really like to dig into. But let us uh, I wanted to ask you, first of all, just for anyone who's watching this and you've brought up Donald Trump and t- t- going to the tower and not being willing to flip it off on camera just for the sake of appearance and whatever, just very briefly, maybe in a sentence, to remind people where you are politically, just so that people <laughs> oh, who yeah. don't know you.
2: It's really funny. Um, it's like, apparently, Twitter has media- mediated me, and I'm apparently like, a famous racist now and I'm all <laughs> kinds of alt-right and super conservative. I saw somebody saying... Welcome, James. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate the love bomb. <laughs> no, so the funny thing is, though, it's like I even got an email the other day from some fool saying that it's like I didn't really get my degrees from the colleges that I claim. I got them from Conservative Bible College or something like that. And it's like, what in the world is going on? Um, no, uh, I actually fall... Pretty far. I mean, my ideal, I fall pretty far to the left. So my ideal kind of government setup, if I had my way about it, which I probably wouldn't because I don't like telling people what to do, um, would be very close to Norway, which is, you know, not exactly known as a uh, libertarian right wing, alt right neo-Nazi bastion of the world. It's, you know, I would, I still think honestly, if we want to get to a specific kind of thing, I still think that the proper highest income tax bracket should be probably just around and maybe a little bit above 50%. So it's not like I'm one of these kind of contractionist, small government, you know, drown it in the bathtub people. I'm certainly not conservative. I'm not socially conservative in any regard. Like people can do whatever they want. Like, uh, you know, want to have sex with with a banana being well wielded by a clown and that makes you happy. Good for you. Who am I to judge? I don't care. It's quite a specific <laughs> fantasy mm-hmm. you've got there, mate. Well, it's one I use as an example. I <laughs> read right? something from Dan Savage about cakes, and so okay. it's like, you know, if the, I got to think of something weird, I just literally don't care. But
0: but before we interrupt, it's lovely to see that you accept me, mate.
1: <laughs> yes. See, that's what I was really about. That was he, really he does get called about. a banana quite regularly. But uh, I just wanted for people to know that because I, I felt like the way we started the conversation. We all right. Of, so, we yeah, got, let's make it really So you're clearly. a European social Democrat, I think, is what you Yeah, that's probably right. Most of the yeah. people in my
2: life who are on the right call me a communist, <laughs> which is strictly <laughs> false. Also, it's just as false as the fact that I'd be on the right. I mean, I'm really not a communist, but I do actually believe – I am a proper traditional liberal who thinks that in in the in an advanced democracy, because of the nature of what an advanced democracy is, you do have to have a very strong and stable social safety net. You do have to have strong social insurance programs. You do have to, in and, and, and the sense, <laughs> let's just lay them out. I'm, I'm very Keynesian in the sense that I think that that which the public sector can do most efficiently and most affordably, the public sector should do, and the private sector should be able to do what it does most efficiently and affordably, and the point of economic policy discussion is to determine what the boundaries on those things are, and to uh, you know to figure out which thing goes in which box and how to how to deal with it. Um, so yeah, most of my positions are pretty pretty staunchly in the left. They're just not in the
1: they're just not leftist. Right. which is a different thing. Well, so so let, let, let's now turn, now that we've got that out of the way, I felt it was important for people to know that about you. Yeah. Let's turn to the mythology that you're talking about, because this mm-hmm. is, I think, really important. I'm going to take a little bit of time to set it out, because I think it's important. So the mythology that you were talking about, and, and do correct me when you get the chance to, to do that, if you need to, is the following. Society is structurally unjust, Against mm-hmm. minorities and women and other mm-hmm. oppressed groups, and what that means is that uh, different people are treated differently in the same circumstances. So, a black homeless man is get gets treated worse than a, a white homeless man. Uh, a woman who's a CEO is treated less well or paid less than a man who's a CEO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And right. as a result of that, we have a society that is structurally unfair and. What we need is uh, a movement which is called social justice, the point of which is to address some of these hidden instances of discrimination, and indeed the fact that all of us are prone to discrimination, particularly those of us who are uh, from the traditionally speaking privileged groups, those of us that are men, those of us that are white, those of us that are straight, those of us that are not trans, etc. That's the mythology. And it's the, the notion of this myth is that we must all look to address the, the 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 biases within us to make society better and fairer for people who are historically disadvantaged, to eliminate discrimination, to make sure that people are no longer oppressed, and to make sure that power is uh, equally distributed between the different groups. Right now. Most people listening to that actually I suspect would go, well, there's an element of truth to that. I mean we're all we've all got prejudices. we're all probably a little bit racist. We, we might have inherited sexist stereotypes from our parents and grandparents. Um, Society is a little bit unfair if you you know uh, police probably are sometimes treating black suspects harsher than than white suspects. Women have had it. Uh, bad over history uh you know slavery was definitely an evil and that surely would have left some sort of legacy uh so if you're just an ordinary person who's listening to this um and going i see this guy on twitter james Lindsay, trying to take all this stuff apart like what you know if i'm an ordinary person why should i be why should i have a problem with quote-unquote social justice
2: Okay, so you did a good job outlying or laying out. Not outlying. I don't know what I'm talking about. Outlying counties or something. No, uh, you did a good job laying out the um, very friendly, although still not without issue, uh, understanding of the mythology. You in fact did a very good job of the social justice aspect. I would tell you that the actual movement that we call maybe woke or whatever is a com. It's a combination of three schools of thought. And one of them is social justice, which is this kind of egalitarian thing that, so the mythology you laid out it has a little bit of the critical aspect, but it's mostly what you laid out was one that's egalitarian and tipping occasionally into a radical egalitarianism. Hmm. So that's one aspect, but wokeness is actually the intentional combination of critical theory, which has its own mythology Postmodern theory, which has its own mythology, and uh, doing those for the purpose of uh, creating social justice, which has its own mythology, and the the you have to understand that. When you just laid out, like, the egalitarian picture that even tips into the radical egalitarian picture here and there, meaning that, yeah, we really do need to kind of, you know, flip the script. So, egalitarianism would be, obviously, that everybody's view gets taken seriously. Radical egalitarianism would be that we're going to make up for past injustices or even current injustices by forwarding people extra to, that have been historically or are currently discriminated. We're going to take those people more seriously than we otherwise would. And so you, that's kind of the social justice mythology. When you said that, you know, oh, so there's, a, you know, if you're straight, you're white, you're male, what you're talking about in general, these kind of what are, are classified under the critical theory school of thought as oppressor classes versus oppressed classes which would be racial minorities sexual minorities gender minorities and we can go as judith butler one of their chief theorists put it that exasperated etc of identity categories so the critical theory school we have to add that in and the critical theory school has the mythology that the world is separated this comes actually from marx so the world is separated into stratified groups that's what you were describing and These groups, this is the key observation, are actually in zero-sum conflict for the uh, access to resources and opportunities in society. There is no everybody's ships rise together in the the critical theory view. There is instead the view that there is a a relatively permanent underclass that is seeking liberation from its oppressors, who are the elite status uh, groups. As history wound on, the elite status groups became identity groups rather than, you know, the actual societal society. Right. So we go
1: from Marx, which is workers of the world unite, overthrow the bourgeoisie, right, and become the owners of the means of production, of capital, of whatever it is, of power. In other words, you right. take the power that has been taken from you historically, and yes. you are now owners of it because you've united as a group of oppressed people to fight off and defeat the oppressors.
2: Right. And so the the view there is that um, where Marx was worried about the means of economic immaterial production. The critical theorists became more interested in the means of uh, social, cultural um, information production. So they became very interested in things like education, faith, media, pop culture, um, elements of middle culture, and saying that those things were creating an ideology to hold down the proletariat to keep them in their place. And then that later in the 1960s in particular, 50s and 60s, fragmented into being very specific about identity politics. Uh, as say, the civil rights movement in the United States started to reach a peak. The identity politics aspect became very prominent. It was kind of present earlier than that. But it became very prominent in the 1960s. And so it kind of changed into an identity politics thing. But the key thing there is that there's been, with with critical theory, there's a shift in ethics that you have to see everything that occurs in the world through a lens of does this maintain oppression or does it provide the access to liberation from oppression? There's the belief now that people are brainwashed by society, by the elite narratives of society to accept and internalize their oppression in a form of false consciousness that they have to be awakened from. So part of the critical mythology is that everybody doesn't know how to act in their best interests. And it's the job of the critical theorists, the awakened few, to go around and consciousness raise, as they call it, and wake people up. So this mythology, when you add in the critical element, includes the idea that all the normal people out there are asleep, that they're being brainwashed by the powerful elites of society to work against their own interests and in the interests of the elites who are going to continue to oppress them. And if you really cut down to the original critical theorists, what liberation from oppression means is liberation from anything that's not communism. So the the oppression is that which is not communism. And so you kind of have this huge shift conceptually when you start integrating the actual critical theory side of um, the mythology into the underlying social justice mythology that you laid out correctly. So now that radical egalitarianism starts taking on literally mind reading that everybody has, you know, internalized the status quo and wants to maintain it for selfish reasons. It needs to be awakened to how terrible their lives are. So there's this n- new thought that only the elites have a good life and everybody else has a terrible life and needs to be awakened to it because they don't even realize it. That's part of the mythology. And that's where it's almost like the influence of the devil is in everybody comes into the picture. Then – and I know this is long and complicated. No, no, just carry is, on. Keep going. Keep
1: it going. It just
2: is what it is. Then you get the postmodern aspect. And postmodernists were technically not the same kind of thing as the critical theorists. If we get really formal, the critical theorists were called neo-Marxists. Uh, they were looking at Marxism in a new way. They were very critical of old original Marxism, so they became something different. But they were ultimately still Marxist at heart in terms of much of how they thought the postmodernists are classified as post-Marxists. They were people, they were French philosophers, for the ones that we're interested in, who had basically seen communism fail everywhere it was tried and just went into this sort of despair. Uh, nothing can be good. They also were, being French, picked up with French philosophy that was very prominent at the time, you know, from, the f- from just ahead of their time, I should say, which would include existentialism. So a lot of nihilism came out of that. And then uh, structuralism, which was this view... That the way that language is structured leads to how people think and how people uh, will then build the power dynamics of society. So they got very interested in language, very interested in knowledge, very interested in what they categorized as discourses. The underlying discourses of society started to form the structures by which society is organized and power plays out and power operates uh, in a dynamic way. And so... What the postmodernists added to the um, mythology is that somehow language, how we speak about things, what we consider legitimate, what we will consider true and false, are somehow central to the organization of material reality and our experience of material reality. Literally, that we don't live in a world where we have access to objective. You know, are close to objectively understanding the world. We can't do scientific experience and and really determine what's true uh, because we are caught up in what, what Michel Foucault called regimes of truth hmm. that are political apparatuses at kind of the superstructural in the Marxian sense uh uh, At that, that level, that dictate how people are going to decide to authenticate statements as true or false. So, Foucault's point, a lot of people don't understand this, is that whether or not a truth claim is actually true is irrelevant. It might be, and that's fine. And it might not be. And that's also fine because the point isn't that. The point of interest and relevance is that there was a political process that determined somebody's ability to say that it's true or false. So if you say, no, 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 it's the rigor of the experiment and the method. And no, well, that was decided by a political process too. So for Foucault, it was politics and power games all the way down. Mm-hmm. And so humans just live in regimes of truth that shape their views of reality. And so we we don't have direct access to understanding anything outside of our own lived experience. So now you have this shift away from being able to know anything and into the personal lived experience of whatever it happens to be as being the genuine, authentic experience of, of the world. You, you, that's Foucault's view. You can look at Derrida's view. We don't have to get deep into Jacques Derrida, but, uh, his general point was that meaning cannot actually be confer- conveyed properly in language. Uh, words, like if I say something like, you know, Zoom meeting or computer or microphone or tree, things that I'm actually looking at right now, that those words don't actually refer to those things at all in any in any intelligible way. They only refer to the words that they are related to either in direct fashion. So if I say something like, you know, maple, because the trees outside my window are maples. If I say maple, that word's related to tree, that word's related to plant, that word's related to life, that word's related, you know, we can get on and on. But then also, in terms of how words are related by not being a thing. So, a tree is, say, not a bush, and a bush or a plant is not an animal. And so, meaning is just caught up in the relationships between words, and his claim, having drawn off of the structuralist school, was that power is hidden in those relationships. Those relationships between words are the discourses. They dictate how words gain meaning. But what this is, is actually a removal of meaning from language. And, And so, you can't use language to derive stable meaning. And these two ideas Combined to a new aspect of mythology that, that um, our friend Mike Nana uh, refers to as the metaphysics of discourse. Uh, so now it's that the way we speak about things, the way that's considered legitimate to speak about things, actually shapes what is and is not true. And that's actually a political process. And so the, the outgrowth of postmodern mythology is that literally everything is politics. And so since literally everything is politics, it's all a matter of whose politics are on the right side of history versus who's on the wrong side of history. And matters like truth and falsity, while they're not technically irrelevant, they're way down the list of importance so that you can then pick and choose. Um, What we see with wokeness is a deliberate combination of the critical theory mythology with this aspect of postmodern mythology about knowledge and truth and language and meaning so that you could use postmodern theory to deconstruct systems of power, but not to deconstruct the lived experience of oppression, which is considered properly basic now because that's where they move everything. So, you have this much more elaborate mythology where literally, and this is a postmodern contribution, literally the words that we use, the way that we think, what we consider true infects us and makes us Literal agents of the oppression that the critical theory school sees, or if we learn to take the right discourses up, literal agents of liberation. And so, who we happen to be politically, not in terms of, say, your skin color, being black isn't enough. You have to be politically black. Being gay is not enough. You have to be politically queer. When you take up the right politics, your identity itself, which is where your lived experience is, becomes the, the epistemological forward claim. And so that's a long ride away from that nicer, but still a little bit like, hmm, there's some questions in that, you know, mythology of social justice that you laid out.
1: All right. So just to put that all into simple language, what you're really saying is we have been told, or some people have been convinced, that we are in a battle between groups of people, one of which is good and one of which is bad, mm-hmm. right? And we have no, there is no truth. There is only a battle over words. Mm-hmm. And if you, whoever wins that battle is the one that that gets to determine what the truth is. And the argument is that the powerful bad groups have been determining what the truth is by abusing language. Therefore, mm-hmm. what must now happen is we must agree that there is no truth other than what I feel. And if mm-hmm. I feel that you are oppressing me by staring directly into the camera and I am from a minority group and you're a straight white man, that means you are oppressing me. Right. That's exactly
2: right. And that last part is so important that the hierarchy of identity, which is really rooted in what's called ethno-historicism, so identity combined with how that identity has been treated both presently, but more importantly, historically, determines the valence of what directions oppression can operate in so dominant groups i could never uh, if i'm you know labeled as a member of a dominant group relationally to you i could never claim oppression uh Hmm. because i uh, you can't possibly oppress me because oppression requires systemic power right so So if 10
1: people from my group were to chase you down in the street because of your skin color and beat you up uh and call you a a white whatever that still wouldn't be oppression that would be prejudice.
2: Exactly, because there's no systemic power. So the kind of mythological object is systemic power, as it has been literally crystallized in the so-called matrix of domination laid out, you know, in the foundational documents of intersectionality in 1990. Um, And it's set up so that that can't change because there's always the constant appeals to either A, history, or B, that structuralist idea or post-structuralist idea from the, uh, from the um, postmodern school that says that when you create a culture until you completely overthrow that culture, all of its biases and political power and all of those things are baked into the discourses. So we could have a system where we're literally under the boots of the most radical, um, say, Black Lives Matter activists that represent maybe 1% of the population in terms of their views. I mean, genuinely radical people who don't represent almost anybody in terms of what they think. And yet, everybody that they genuinely oppress would not be able to consider themselves oppressed, because they would have an, an appeal to say, well, the system we still have to operate in was generated by cultural right. moors that were generated in white Western European
1: contexts. All right, Francis, no. now I'd like you to please summarize what James has been talking about in three sentences. Go.
0: Well, to me, <laughs> to me, it just proves my number one rule of life, which is you should never trust the French. But anyway, <laughs> so, so uh, but what I wanted to ask you, James, is this. So what we've done is, is we've analyzed the structure, the, the way that it works, the thought processes. I'm very interested in the emotions behind this. Now we talk about mythology, Mythology mm-hmm. had a purpose 2,000 years ago to explain things that at that time we had no concept of or an understanding of why certain things happen, why, ro- why the sun rose, why it set, all the rest of it. Why do we have this mythology now?
2: I think it's actually because whereas the physical sciences have matured quite successfully, so we understand why the sun rises and why the sun sets, um, the social sciences have not. The social sciences are still quite opaque. The methodologies are not worked out. We don't know what rigorous looks like. The uh, rising replication crisis, especially in social psychology, has shown that um, the methods that we believed in were very easy to hack and to create lots of uh, you know successful papers uh, out of out of thin air, more or less. And so the social sciences are in their infancy. Um, that doesn't get to the the emotional side of it. But the social sciences are in their infancy. So they're not actually well-developed, very mature uh, lines of reasoning. So in a sense, the social processes, how power actually works in society. When we started at the beginning talking about how these narratives run away from us, that's something that the postmodernists would have been very interested in. It's very closely related to postmodern theory. And so in general, what we've seen, and we can get to the emotions in a second with this, what we've seen it through history is that there's kind of mythology leading into natural philosophy, or really philosophy leading into natural philosophy, leading into science. Mm -hmm. And so what we have is kind of a hardening up from mythology into philosophizing, where now reason becomes more important that hardens up into let's look at the world to to base our reason to let's actually use experimentation and falsification and get really hard rigorous methods. And it turns out that that a human beings and, and human thought are very complex. And then human social behavior is, of course, another order of complexity higher than that. So it's very difficult. It's not like tracking a baseball shot out of a cannon or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, with a projectile motion physics equation or figuring out, you know, how we're going to even send a rocket to the moon. These are very straightforward calculations using relatively hard, but relatively simple underlying formulas. It's hard math, but it's the principles aren't. So social sciences are much more complex. And so we we have this problem where we're we're still quite early on. And the so we're we're moving from mythology. And if you look at, say, Freud, Freud was very and even Jung, you're talking like those are considered the forefathers of psychology. This is a hundred years ago. And they were very mythology, like mm. that was that was just the very beginning of bringing philosophy into the picture of the social sciences, and it's just a hundred years ago, and it's such a complex subject. And now, you know, you might say that we're we're in this weird phase where there's some of it's philosophy, but like ethics, some of it is natural philosophy where we're very closely looking at the world, and some of it is you know closer to hard science where people are being very rigorous, and there's this kind of spectrum of rigor happening. And in the process of this, first of all, a lot of it's not working out. A lot of it's not giving us the answers when we try to do experiments like the Great Society, where we're going to now base our societies on social scientific research. But the social scientific research is really early on. You're going to make some bad mistakes and it doesn't work out and people are going to get upset. But there's a second process happening besides all of this confusion from a national scientific process. And we might be still, even with the advent of AI, which will be, I think, necessary to understand psychology and sociology properly. Even with the advent of that, we might still be 100 or 50 years away from a robust social science, a properly rigorous one. But in addition to this, the shift from, um, you know, mythology through philosophy to more natural philosophy to actual science, this never, ever, ever, ever progresses without the people on the weaker end of that epistemologically without them losing their shit they Mm. the turf wars get insane so what you actually see is this rise of the prominence of the social scientists and then you have these people who are closer to philosophers uh working in humanities departments gender studies for example ethnic studies african-american studies these people don't have the slightest idea about doing statistics they don't have the slightest interest in doing statistics and uh they become jealous. If you read back C.P. Snow's "The Two Cultures," you can see that there's this great jealousy between the philosophy side of things and the science side of things as that that transition happens. Because basically, the philosophers who held themselves in high esteem and had good elite jobs become pretty much irrelevant. They're just people sitting in an armchair making shit up, and the scientists are finding out the real truths of the world. And nobody likes that when you, you know they're the one getting excluded. And so there's actually been in this kind of this combination of it lacking success in the the application realm. And then in the sense that it's still so new, but we're, you have the humanities people losing prestige, there was a pushback for the humanities and, and philosophy types to gain prestige. And they actually went backwards. Hmm. Rather than applying rigorous philosophy, they started to build a more and more mythological structure. And I think the reason for that on top of their envy and hatred of the sciences that are stealing their, their importance um, and their inability to produce reliable results rigorously and be taken seriously. On top of that, there's the, the problem that because they've adopted these ideas like conflict theory from Marx and these ideas about, you know, these kind of very simplistic ideas about how individuals operate within the context of identity categories. When you have something that's not true, the only thing that you can really do is start to lean more and more heavily on the force of story. Mm-hmm. And they decided to lean straight into that and started to cre- con- to create a very mythological view. If you follow, like in our books, Helen and I just wrote, it's about to come out, Cynical Theories. We actually talk about th- that in a sense, which is that... Um, Over the years, we just focused on postmodernism, but over the years since the 1960s, when postmodernism came into the picture, what you actually see is something that was very complex, first getting packaged up so activists could use it and then becoming very simple and concrete. So that when you read somebody like Robin DiAngelo, who obviously is a huge rock star figure right now in the field, it literally comes off like she's like a 10 year old could read it. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, it's very condescending. And that's because. the the oversimplification in and and kind of dogmatic authoritarianism the, the the mythological backing becomes the thing that makes up for the fact that they don't have rigor. So there's this hmm. rather than them saying, "Oh, I'm going to learn statistics and try to do this right," they just you know went the other way and started to say statistics is part of the evil in the world, and so we're going to avoid that on principle and and call it a master's tool and you know become more story driven, et cetera. And so there's this really weird um, kind of retrograde development and the failure of social science to, to be rigorous enough and to have this mm-hmm. replication crisis and so on coming into, into the picture led there to be a lot of room for, well, obviously, the the scientists people don't really know what they're talking about. So we'll tell a story that, that fills that in. And I think that's what happened. Uh, and
0: James, and I want to, there's another question I wanted to ask. It's because it seems to be the younger generations who seem to be, you know, infected and believing these narratives. Why do you think that it's the younger generation in particular and not the older generations as, as a result? Is it because of the college? Is it because at that age you simply know less, therefore you tend to be more malleable? Or is it because more and more... you? Young people are realizing that the capitalism they're being exposed to isn't really working for them when it comes to things like home ownership, the gap between rich and poor, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's Great. all of those things. It's, it is. It is actually all of those things. So this kind of like pernicious and cynical analysis has this the critical theory analysis has actually been a fundamental part of primary, secondary, and university education now for a number of years. Um, for whatever set of reasons our schools decided to focus in at least in the United States on self-esteem initiatives rather than accomplishment initiatives and this has created people that weren't you know if you read like Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff you see that this is this has created um, individuals who are not as resilient and not as capable of dealing with um, their lack of understanding of the world so when you have your you know normally young people are very like just becoming sort of i guess politically conscious in there they get caught up in these things um, and th- and then you can add in to what you said all of the things you said I don't really have to repeat them uh, but you can add into this one extra element which is a general loss of meaning in a society that's bent on the idea of progress and why i say that is because while you have you have this confluence of events where things are definitely not perfect and there are definitely observable problems say with regard to race with regard to sex with regard to trans issues and so on and so forth There are definitely observable problems stuff isn't figured out and perfect some of the stuff may never be perfect but at the same time the big civil rights battles were actually already fought and those are kind of the big heroes of our of our time you know that's uh, two generations removed from from the world today and so the big heroes we look back to were the civil rights giants. Oh, you know, we made life better for black people. And that was like the greatest thing possible. Martin Luther King is, and I do think that of course, Martin Luther King was, did insanely good work and some of the most important work in the history of the Western world. But at the same time, you get a bunch of people hop, young people hopped up on this vision that creating civil rights success is the big thing to do. And then the battles are like, well, do you like add an extra bathroom for trans people? Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, it's, it's like, because the whole trans thing came out and people are like, some people are trans and everybody was kind of like, okay. Like, there was no fight. There was no drama. It was just, they had to make fights about bathrooms and sports, which genuinely create, you know, there are genuine issues there. <laughs> but for the most part, it's like, well, be trans if you want. It's like, I remember with one of my kids, like, she went through this whole series of different changes. You know, we, we were all atheists. And so all of a sudden she became Christian and she was like, I'm a Christian now. And we're like, okay, you want me to go to the store and buy you a Bible? And she was like, ah, you didn't get mad at me. That proves you don't love me. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> you're a 14 year old girl, aren't you? And then it was like, <laughs> then it was like, I'm bisexual. And we're like, yeah, we kind of always thought that. And then she's like, ah, you didn't try to disown me. You don't really love me. And it's like, it's just, you know, there has been so much successful civil rights progress that when these new civil rights issues come up, there are like with the trans issue around safe bathrooms and around sports and around a handful of other kind of concerns. There are specifics that have to be figured out and worked out and that are actually genuinely difficult in that case. Mm. Fine. But. In the principle, everybody's like, yeah, okay, expand rights. Oh, yeah, gay people, normal. Okay. And so there's there's this burning need in the young people to be civil rights heroes. There's visible problems of imperfection, and then the really, like, profound and meaningful fights are easy. Hmm. So there's no meaning in it. You're like, we're here for gay rights, and everybody's like, okay, have a parade. <laughs> cool. Like, let's set that up. You know, it's like there's not nobody shows up with fire hoses or anything like this. And so, so they're looking like,
1: for a big fight, but
2: no one wants to fight them back. But nobody needs to fight. Yeah. So it's like and that genuinely does create a crisis of meaning. And then if you couple that with what with what you said, Francis, where um, if you couple that with the fact that the world genuinely, especially like post 2009, 2009 recession and financial crisis Uh, and and then whatever the universities have been doing to these poor kids and i don't mean mentally i mean financially Mm. like they're properly screwed and so you, you tie into that level of like resentment that the society has cheated them and stolen from them and so you have this kind of very i have a bunch of friends actually who are like bernie people and they don't like the woke at all and they think that the woke is like totally excessive and insane but they're like 100% Occupy Wall Street and they're just mad as hell that Occupy Wall Street didn't work and the Republicans are stealing our future from us and these big business interests and the corrupt, corrupt politicians are stealing our future from us. And there's like a lot of kind of truth to that. And then now after this is all blown up, they don't know what to do because it's like they kind of, they're like, well, the woke are busting everything up. So we're on their side now, even though we don't like them, you know? And so there's this weird like fight but they don't know where the real fight is. And then there's an issue that's gaining traction. So they latch onto it and get, get all worked up. it. it's a very confusing time, I think, to be under 35, not least because the schools have literally been mind-fucking them pretty much the entire time so that they think in weird poisonous ways to find where, you know, oppression and bad things are happening and to not trust the system or understand how the system works and so on. So really, like, so when you ask the question, you listed a bunch of stuff. It's like, yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bunch of stuff at once.
0: And James, we're now hit this catalyst, which is COVID. We have now seen the Black Lives Matter movement. We've now seen, you know, rioting, you know, destruction of property. And it's very, very, it's a, it's a tricky question to ask. Well, not particularly hold on fair. before
2: you say rioting. We learned yesterday that the proper term is in, intensified peacefulness. Yes. Okay. fantastic. Yeah, that, that, that means rioting and arson. <laughs>
1: yeah courthouse court burned down as a it, it, literally the, the 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 news report said Uh, a courthouse got burned down and something else was badly damaged and police officers were injured when a peaceful demonstration intensified. Yeah. So the peacefulness intensified as a result of which property got destroyed and people got injured. That's right. So we've seen a lot of peacefulness, Francis, is what you were saying.
0: Yeah, mate. Yeah, I I burnt uh, uh, the the dinner last night, so I saw some intensified peacefulness at last night's dinner. But anyway... Uh, The point is, James, is where do you think this is going to end up? Do you think what do you think is a natural progression for this?
2: That's hard and scary. Every people keep asking me this, and it's like uh, it's so nonlinear. I wish you would just ask me the easy question, like what's their end goal? And it's like I don't think they have one, but somebody Mm -hmm. that's behind them probably does. So we'll see who tries to scoop up. Like I'm starting to get the impression that the woke are the useful idiots for somebody who's not as Mm -hmm. not as uh, politically lost and internally contradictory and they are basically the bulldozers leveling the mm. ground so that some somebody who actually wants to build something scary in the world can come in and fill that space but uh i don't know for sure what'll happen now uh i think a lot of people have have been awakened to wokeness and many of them are the liberal type who need to fight back against it with reason and mm. trying to claim the mantle of moral and epistemological authority and, and and high ground that that comes with that and to fight for putting our society back on the track of genuine, you know, proper progress. But at the same time, there is what people kind of refer to as the sleeping giant. And last time we spoke, we you asked about this and we actually talked about it. We talked about whether or not there was going to be a rise of genuine racism, a rise of genuine hmm. sexism. And that's the sleeping giant, which is our majority groups going to be awakened to full fair um, zero-sum identity politics. Mm. And I genuinely think at this point that the giant is stirring and has one eye open. And that's a bad place to be. So n- no reasonable person wants this. The wokes game is to claim that there's no such thing as a reasonable person. And so everybody who is
1: against them does want that.
2: And that's ridiculous. Which is no why the three of us are
1: all alt right and blah, 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 because you can't oppose them without being smeared and tarnished so that no reasonable person can oppose them because. Therefore, on, all reasonable people would agree with them. Right. That's
2: because of the mythology, which the first tenet of which, if it's the critical race mythology, says that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in our society, not aberrational. And so that translated into Robin DiAngelo condescending speak is the question is no longer did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in that situation? Because the racism is to be assumed. So um, that's part of the mythology, that racism is in every possible interaction, if you look at just that aspect. So if that infects the sleeping giant and the sleeping giant wakes up and you start to see these like r- militia groups going crazy or white identity politics rising, I, I don't see any solution other than civil war, uh, which will be a very nasty one because – That's a thing that's very hard to stop once it starts happening. It's very hard to get that resentment and anger back under control. And the woke have the narrative on their own side that that resistance is to be expected. Resistance is a predictable result of doing this work, blah, blah, blah. So they think that they're genuinely unmasking people who are always alt-right, you know, Evil racist lunatics and they'll use it as evidence. So you see this happening in these cities in America. These protesters know what they're doing. They're not idiots. They actually know what they're doing. Their objective when they go and agitate, say a federal building in Portland last night, their objective is to try to get law enforcement to react. Their goal is to try to get the police or even better, the feds, to step in and try to control them, at which point if it's the police, they'll say, look, fascists. And if it's the feds, they'll say, Trump is now seizing power. He's the dictator that we've been telling you he is for four years. And it's this weird thing where there's enough people who believe that narrative. And again, this is that relevance of that Trump derangement that I was talking about, that when they say it, a huge proportion of left-leaning under 35s are all going to believe it. Yep, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um my friend, for example, recently got very upset with me on my Bernie, one of my Bernie friends. And he said, you know, what do you think's going on? And I told him and he just got really mad at me and then said, you've shot your arrow and painted the target around it. And I was like, okay, conversation over. Um, if that's how you're going to think about this, uh, fine. But that's kind of what's going on it's like you literally have people who are so convinced that trump is a dictator in waiting and i will admit there are concerning signs there are concerning possibilities around that claim um
1: and like what james uh the the
2: so with his the most concerning one for me is nothing to do with his policy it's the kind of like A loyalty based attempt to fill his government only with people who are loyalists to his cause, right? So there's like these purges happening within different government departments to try to get them on side. That stuff makes me concerned. His policies... Not so much. He's not even really like gone nuts too much with the executive orders or any of these kind of things. He's not doing anything overtly like that. But when you start trying to make a purity campaign within your own government rather than an a ideological diversity campaign, that's a different
1: thing. Well, isn't but, that isn't that just a businessman's way of doing things? In that, if you run a business, you don't want people who fundamentally disagree with the oh, mission, sure, sure, sure. the mission statement of your
2: business. Right. So something being concerning isn't the same as something being proved. Right. Mm-hmm. So there are there are signs that it's possible. Okay. I genuinely think it's unlikely that Trump is actually dictatorial in his and his uh, ambition, it's more likely that he's dynastic and Trump wants to try to rig the system so that, say, his kids become president next. And, you know, there's this kind of. That wouldn't dy- be
1: all that unusual for the United <laughs> States, let's be honest. No kidding. no <laughs> kidding. Do we need another Bush or Clinton to come in and save the day? Right. Yeah, maybe a couple of Roosevelt's or something. All right. Um, James, well, look, uh, just to wrap up, it's an interesting, it's a fascinating, not just interesting, fascinating talking to you about this. But I want to make for the last five, 10 minutes of the interview just Turn this right into the real world, which is people are now starting to see we've had it in this country, people being fired for criticizing the mo- this movement, mm-hmm. uh, people being ostracized uh, what what's called cancel culture. Uh, people a lot, you know sixty two percent of Americans now say in the latest Cato poll that they are scared to express their political opinion publicly. 46% of people in Britain say that they we, we, we have less free speech uh, than we did a few years ago versus 20% that say we have more. So the direction of travel is this movement has taken hold mm-hmm. of, of all the cultural institutions, the education system, television, news media, et cetera. People are feeling it. Mm-hmm. And if someone is watching the show, and and they've 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 sat through forty minutes of us talking about critical race theory and Foucault, and they're going, okay, well, I feel all this is happening around me. Mm-hmm. What the hell do I do? Right. So
2: unfortunately, there's not like, oh, you know, go register with this and you're done. Uh, you know, it, and it's hopefully not so grim as learn Chinese, um, but <laughs> I mean. Hmm. But the 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 long and short of what you, you you actually do have to put in some legwork if you want to do something. There are two options: do you want to take it on, or do you want to do something different? And both of those things are are success vectors. The if you want to take it on, you have to learn some of it. You have to the stuff that we just talked about. You have to become at least basically conversant in it. You have to learn to see. The word games, the the setups, because that's what these are. It's built out of setups. I've said it over and over and over again, just as a very quick idea. Uh, but this will come into every context in your life with, say, critical race theory. It assumes racism's in everything. Therefore, say you run a shop and a white person and a black person enter at the same time. You have to pick one customer to help first. If you pick the white person the racism must be present, and so the the, the um, reason you pick the white person is because you think white people are first-class citizens and black people are second-class citizens and you're a racist. If you pick the black person first, it's because you don't trust black people to be unattended in your store while you help the other customer. And then you want to get them out of your store as quickly as possible, and you're racist because racism must be present in every situation. So when you start to see that the thing is playing a game with you to set you up, to keep you on your heels, to make you feel stupid, to make you feel immoral, to make you feel like you're on the wrong side of history, to make you feel like you're not part of what where the crowd is going. You Once you see that, then you can find your own feet. But you do have to learn a little bit about how the, the ideology thinks, how it uses language, what it means by its words. There's a little bit of legwork put it, to put into that. I made new discourses to provide resources for that. You can use it. You can use other ones. I'm not like I'm the only correct voice on this. There are people speaking up. It's good. So um, you have to learn something. And then you have to start talking with other people, find people who agree with you, start to organize and actually start showing up. If you're going to be an activist, you have to show up. Activists show up. That's why these people are in so many like bureaucracies, they're on so many committees, they're installing policies and that's where it's happening is they're changing the level, they're changing the world at the level of administrative policy so that people are stuck having to behave or they'll get fired or something like that. So you have to show up and push back the other way, get on the committee, volunteer with your boss to help lead, you know, the diversity leadership initiative that everybody has to take up now and try to steer it away from this nonsense and toward more productive venues so that you can tackle the real problems. On the other hand, If you're like, I can't learn like uh, a lot of a lot of my even very smart friends, very academic friends, like I just can't think like that. I can't think wrong stuff. Okay, great. You maybe you should learn a little bit of it just to have some background, do what you can don't stress what you actually need to do. You do need to understand the way that it does shakedowns on people. But other than that, you need to go build the thing. Go build the thing. If it's in our schools, People need alternatives. They need other ways to get educated or educate their kids. In the United States, there's gonna be an ungodly number of people doing homeschooling. Those people are gonna need resources. They're craving the reason they're doing the homeschooling is they want not woke resources, educational resources. So go build a thing that offers that. If you're gonna work, you know, in law, you know, leave your current law society if it's going woke and go create one that isn't. And, you know, don't put like proudly racist since 2020 on the side, but you know proudly not woke is actually a thing right now. You know, tr- you know you'd know, you have to find the right wording,
1: obviously. No, but, but totally, I know what you mean. Yeah. I said this the other day, like if, you, if your small business comes under attack from these woke people now, the best thing you can do, the best thing you can do right now is just double down and go, my Mars bars are for non-woke people and you're going to get way more money than you would have done otherwise.
2: It's absolutely true. Um, so people who are looking at this world you need to understand that giving into this will not satisfy the problem. Mm. It's it is an unsatisfiable black hole of a problem. Giving in to something that's shaking you down or extorting you is an invitation for them to shake you down or extort you again later. And that's really what this is. It's using using fancy terminology, a claim on the current of history, and uh, agitations about people's moral standing rather than say physical intimidation to bully them. It's using administrative policies to try to get people fired. So uh, yeah, build the thing, go build the thing. We're going to be a company that's not going to be woke. We're going to get harassed and we're going to endure the harassment to give people a place they can work, and if you're going to build a company, you will outcompete your competitors because mm-hmm. they're going to have to di- divert an increasing amount of resources to wokeness if they let it into their company because it's not satisfiable. It just keeps coming for another shakedown, another as as you know, it's very mafia logic. It's like kicking the kicking it up to the to the to the mob boss, and so do the thing. We need like if if we if you say, oh my gosh, everything's fallen there's two ways to look at that. That's, you know, chicken little, the sky has fallen or whatever. And there's, this is an opportunity and I'm about to, about to blow this thing up. Mm -hmm. So just, if you don't want to learn this and take it on head on, you don't want to be an activist, just go do the thing. And like you said, stand strong, double down. You, this is what, so I know your last question is coming. It was the thing that nobody's talking about. I'm going to steal your thunder and just jump right to it. Go for, for it. For sake, John. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Francis. Take that. I got my banana for you right here. buddy. <laughs> thought you'd never ask, mate. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, that's the thing is nobody's talking about the fact that the liberal perspective, the one that we've built our modern world out of, has the moral high ground. It is, it is the right way to think about these issues. It's not to say that it's perfect. It's not to say that we can't do better at listening or whatever else, but it holds the moral high ground. It has the also epistemological high ground because it actually gives a shit what's true, <laughs> which is a different. I mean, you read this paper, Alison Bailey, 2017, something about, I can't remember the title, Tracking Privilege Preserving Epistemic Pushback, something shadow texts and philosophy classrooms or some shit like this. And in there, she literally writes that epistemic adequacy is a master's tool. Epistemic adequacy is academic speak for knowing what you're talking about. That's all, like, literally knowing what you're talking about is racist. Sounds pretty racist. Sounds (laughs) racist. So you have the high ground to say no, and nobody's talking about that. Everybody's kind of like, how do we make them happy? You don't. You don't, you say, no, I'm actually in the right here. I talked to a guy the other day and he's, you know, we had a conversation like two hours on a podcast and he's like, at the end, he's just kind of sitting there and he gets this look on his face. And he's like, I think I've just come to the point where somebody's going to say, you know, Hey, you're racist. And I'm just going to say, no, (laughs) no, I'm not. Okay. I'm not. And that's it. Like you do. So if you want to ask me the question, I'll make up another one, by the way, though.
0: Yeah, I'm going to do it purely out of spite,
2: James. (laughs) I knew you would. You, with your smile that hides all your spite, your mask is slipping.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm nothing if not work. So uh, what is the one thing that we're not talking about that we really should be?
2: So you mean like everybody? Because I could just say like that the Lay's dill pickle potato chips are like next level good. Nobody talks about that. I never hear anybody say that at all. Yeah, they did. Well, okay, now two people are saying it, and then we have a skeptic. (laughs) No, um, So, what I don't hear people talking about that I think people do need to talk about is regular stuff. Hmm. Like not being political for once. Regular stuff. Like... I know that they're trying to cram it. I saw that the opening of the baseball season, it's like everybody's on their knees and crying in the mm-hmm. field or something. And they got black lives matter on the, on the home run fence and all of this crap. And it's like, but nobody's just talking about the baseball game. Mm-hmm. Nobody's talking about nobody's going to work and just talking about how to do the job. Nobody's taught what, what is, what are we not talking about that we should be normal stuff, everyday stuff. Like, Getting together with your family and not having a political argument and just talking to each other as human beings without the politics injected. So I know that some people are doing this, but what we really all need to be doing is ratcheting down how much we're obsessing about what's on the news, how much we're obsessing about what's on social media, how much we're obsessing about the political valence of this, the political valence of that, and remembering that we can just be normal people Mm -hmm. with each other also, and that that's really where life is right? That's the heart. That's the beating heart of social life. These, I might swear, fucking woke idiots piss me off because they're like, we need to have authentic cross-racial relationships by focusing on the most divisive possible thing in the relationship constantly and bringing it up and calling each other out. That's the least authentic way to have a relationship ever. The most authentic way to have a relationship is for me to look you in the eye and say, you're a person." that I can relate to. You can look me in the eye and say, you're a person. You wouldn't really say that because it's weird. But <laughs> we're people that can relate to each other. And let's just be friends on terms that have something to do with our lives. And let's not turn this into like a political argument. So the thing that people aren't talking about, but should be, is
1: everything else. Everything that's not what they're yelling about on Twitter that day. That's a really good point, James. And, and I've been trying to say this to people for some time now. It's like, Racism doesn't diminish because you got admonished on TV by somebody. Mm. It diminishes when people meet in the same space and connect and find out about each other's background and culture and, and, and just connect as people and talk about family and movies and play sports together and do stuff together when when they actually take a moment to not think about race, to not That's think right. about any of that stuff and just connect as human beings. Um and it's, it's a really important point you make. Very bad for trigonometry, Yeah, uh, but, but a good Don't point. Don't listen none. to
0: what James said, basically, guys.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> listen, everybody
2: watch trigonometry and send them money. That's that's what you really that's nobody's talking about your
1: Patreon. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, some people are fans are are helping us find a new studio after we lost our previous one not to be due to not being quite woke enough. But, James, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, People should definitely, definitely check out Cynical Theories, the, the book that you've just written. With Heather, uh, Helen Pluckrose, not Heather. I do Pluckrose. it all the time. My wife's name is Heather, and it's just a nightmare. I'm mm-hmm. mixing them up in my head all the time. Well, that that there's an extra dimension to that that we're not going to be not get as into. people, just the names. I'm <laughs> <laughs> very clear on who's who, yeah. Uh, so uh, with Helen Pluckrose, who's a former guest of ours as well. Also, people should check out new discourses, they should follow you on Twitter if they do want to to hear more about all this crazy race stuff. Um, and, uh, uh is there anything else that you, you want people to know about that you do? Um, no, that's pretty
2: much all I do now. Uh, but I did, if people are, are listening and you know, whatever, I actually got, a, I bought a domain name cynical So you don't have to remember, like go look up mm-hmm. the cynical theory. You can go cynical theories.com or just redirects to the Amazon link now. So now you can just go buy it. No problem. I don't think it works in the UK, though. I think it's the US one. You can only put one. All right. Okay. Sorry. Perfect. And before we finish, I've got a very
0: one last important question. What was the name of those potato chips again?
2: Lay's dill pickle. Lay's is the brand, dill oh, okay. pickle flavor. They are the perfect amount of dill pickle flavor and vinegar and salt. It's like salt and vinegar, but better with the dill. It's great okay. stuff. But
1: Francis, you're not getting anywhere near crisps for the rest <laughs> of your life, mate. You're on a diet. Um, yeah. <laughs> Get in shape, man. <laughs> <laughs> he actually did during the lockdown. This is the thing. I used to make fun of him for being fat, and now he's not fat. It's oh, him. very good. It's kind of Cheers disappointing. Yes. Disappointing. But anyway, James, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Make sure you check out Cynical Theories and uh, the, the News Discourses website as well. And uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. If you are in the middle of a day, enjoy your evening if you're in the evening. And we'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode or live stream
0: absolutely and our episodes and live streams go out on tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday and sunday always at 7 p.m uk time at 7 p.m uk time see you soon guys